Welcome to the podcast of Trinity Church London. You're listening to a message given on a Sunday morning. If you'd like to know more about us and the life of the church, please visit trinitychurchlondon.com. We're starting a brand new series that we're hoping is going to be a companion as we exit lockdown and enter into our new normal because we've got about 10 11 more weeks until june the 21st and if everything's if everything kind of goes to plan we will be without masks not socially distanced all together in one room and it's going to be a great celebration i was thinking in the car on the way home here i would love us to have a lunch on that first sunday we're going to do a lunch I haven't talk, not talked to anybody about this, but I'm just declaring it by divine fear. We're going to have a lunch together in this place and we're going to have some food and we're going to put some music on and we're going to celebrate if we can, God willing. Um, but we're 10 weeks away from that moment, there or thereabouts. And we are going to use Philippians as a companion as we exit lockdown to kind of gather us together as we find ourselves on the other side of what has been a very difficult year for us. So this sermon really is just to set the scene and to lay the stage for what this book is really about, to set some context for what it is. And so it's an introduction. So I was set to set the scene, pray, and then just notice one thing or two things. It's actually a few things. I don't know why I say that. It's a few things I'm noticing from the scriptures that I'm going to tell you about. Then we're going to pray. I'm a bit happy now because there's no time restrictions. So I promise I won't be too long. But let's set the scene with Philippians. Paul, as we know him, the Apostle Paul, who wrote much of the New Testament, as we now have it, he started off as a highly regarded Jewish leader, Saul. He had a radical encounter with this man, Jesus Christ, who had been crucified, but became alive again. And as he met Jesus, everything for him changed. And far from going from like tearing down churches and trying to kill Christians... He changed his name to become Paul as a sign of his new identity as a Christian. And he actually started to persuade people to become Christians and try to start churches. So he traveled the whole of the Middle East, trying to start new churches in new cities, telling people and persuading them that this man, Jesus, is who he said he is. He is God. He is the living Lord. And he is going to be the judge of all of us one day. And when we get to Philippi, what we have is Paul entering for the first time European soil and taking the gospel to what we now have as us in London, the first time getting towards England. And he travels to Neapolis, a a seaport, and walks 13 kilometers straight to Philippi, which was the leading city of the region. And Paul's strategy was always to go to the most influential city to start a gospel movement there and allow the gospel to ripple out from that place. And so he walks 13 kilometers to Philippi. And when we think of city, we might think of London, eight, nine million people or Tokyo, like some 30 million people incredibly like one city but for for these guys at this stage city meant around 15,000 people historians think so it's a very different kettle of fish but Philippi was hugely influential it was called a little Rome it was set up as a Roman colony where soldiers who had retired would go and um live out their retirement don't know what roman soldiers who retire do in their retirement but that's where they would go and it was set up as a little rome hugely influential and so paul walked into this city praying and asking god would you help me start a gospel movement and start a church and help people see that christ is lord in this place 
So finding out that this place was a religious city, it was a bit like kind of a religious pick and mix of its day because Philippi prided itself on basically any God you have, we've got it in this city. You can pray to that God. And there was a place down by the river where people would go to pray to their own God. And Paul thought, I'm going to go there to try and persuade people that Christ is actually who he said he was. And I met him because he's alive, never to die again. And he went down and he met a small group of people. And one of the people who listened and was persuaded by Paul was a woman, a wealthy businesswoman called Lydia. And she says yes to the message of Paul to the gospel, becomes a Christian, gets baptized. And then a few days later, we're told there is this, in, all in Acts 16, it's well worth reading. There is this slave girl who has this unclean spirit and has this ability to tell people's fortunes. And so she's owned by someone who makes money out of her. It's like, it's this horrible form of human trafficking. And he makes money out of her spiritual gifts from this unclean spirit. And after a while of her following Paul and basically throwing um, kind of shame and trying to bring disturbance to Paul, he turns and says, I want to pray for you. He prays for her. The unclean spirit leaves her. She realizes that he has the true power in the name of Jesus. She becomes a Christian to get baptized. The local government gets so upset that Paul and his friend Silas are, are, are changing the spiritual dynamics in the city and claim that there's only one God, not many gods like this spiritual pick and mix that they celebrated, that they threw him and Silas in jail. And rather than getting like grumpy, which I would be, I would be tempted to get grumpy at this point. Like, Paul, I'm walking around the Mediterranean trying to tell people about you. And now I'm in jail. What's going on? They don't get grumpy. They choose to praise and worship Jesus in the night. And we're told at midnight, this earthquake rippled through Philippi. So much so that the, the, the jail doors were ripped open and the doors swung open. I mean, if that were me, I'm like... I'm out of here. See you later, guys. And just get out of there. But Paul and Silas, they were godlier than I. They saw that the Roman soldier was getting ready to kill himself because if a Roman soldier lost a prisoner at this stage, they, they were ready to be killed by their superiors. That's right, Kira. You don't want to be a Roman soldier in that day. And, and what they say, they say, no, don't kill yourself. We're not going to go anywhere. We would rather stay in jail and tell you about this Jesus, the reason why we're here in the first place. So they stay in jail. They stay under arrest. They tell this Roman centurion about this Jesus. He is persuaded through the power that they see in these men. You're living for something else than just this life. He is persuaded. He becomes a Christian, goes home to tell his family. His whole family, we're told, are persuaded that this Jesus is also Lord. They've seen the change in their dad, her her husband, whoever else in the family. They all get baptized and become Christians. The the, the Roman uh, authorities at the time, they didn't know what to do and like, it seems like a lot of the time, if they don't know what to do, they just be Christians and say, stop it. Don't do it again. So they do that with Paul and Silas. They just beat them, say, don't do it again. Don't talk about Jesus. You're causing a mess in our city that was doing fine before you arrived. Anyway, what did Paul and Silas do? No, they go and gather the Christians who have become Christians recently. They go back down to the riverside at the end of Acts 16, we're told. They gather Lystra, sorry, they gather Lydia and the other people who have just become Christians and they have probably one of their first meetings of the church plant, the first church plant in Europe in Philippi. Now, you've got to imagine being Lydia, this sophisticated, well-dressed businesswoman. She dealt in cloth. She dealt in fashion. You have this, this uh, young girl who used to be a slave girl. And you have this Roman centurion who has brought his whole family along to this first Bible study of this first meeting of the church planet. You can imagine being like Lydia and like looking around like, what, what am I doing with these people like doing a Bible study? 
Like imagine being the Roman centurion or like being invited for the first time and you're like the dad of the Roman centurion and you're like, what are we doing dad in this place? You might feel like that at Trinity Church London. You're like, why am I in a, in a room? Like I've, I've, how am I ended up with these people in this room? And why? It's because of this man, Jesus Christ. That he gathered this diverse group of people who would not be together for any sociological reasons were it not for Jesus. And this super diverse grows and we're not told much about how the church do, but we think that they do well. There's, le- there's, there's letters written later and um, than even the letter we have to the Philippian church here with, from Paul. that seems to indicate this church did really well. They flourished in the city of Philippi, even against um, opposition. But 10 years later or so, when we get this letter that Paul writes to the church, this church that he started, this church that he loves, something seems to be going awry. We're told in chapter four that there are these two women, potentially two of Lydia's friends. We don't know. They seem to be leaders in the church, influential. Something happens with these two people and they are beginning to fall out. I know it's a shock and a horror that people in church would fall out. But here we are. Chapter four, verse two, he says, I entreat you, dear, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers. So what seems to have happened is that these two women have had some kind of falling out. They're not now seeing eye to eye. They're not cooperating. They're not working together. And Paul is writing this letter to work out bringing the church together. There seem to have been some kind of factions that might have developed. We don't know the entirety of the story. But Paul writes to this church that he loves, urging them basically to gather together, to come side by side for their common purpose. If there were a purpose statement for this letter, I would suggest that it comes in chapter 1, verse 27, where Paul says this. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent... I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, so not divided, not in factions, not isolated from one another, in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So at one point they were side by side on mission for a purpose with the gospel in their hands and somehow they had kind of turned inwards and got fractious and isolated from each other. And Paul saying, no, no, turn back side by side. There is a great purpose for you. There is a reason for you to gather around the gospel for the faith of the gospel, he says. And so as we walk through Philippians over these next 10 weeks What we're going to be doing is we're going to be gathered by Paul through his letter to the Philippian church together for purpose. I think this is a really pertinent letter for us at this time, because thank God we haven't had fallings out in the church and friendships and relationships are going really well. But we have just been dealt a huge blow by COVID, haven't we, over the last year? Like what was once together, united. I mean, I was sharing the first service. I remember our first, one of our last services here, we had a Sunday lunch. I've got some photos of this lunch where we laid out all these tables here and we just ate together. People brought their own food together. It was amazing. It was happy. There was music. It felt good. And there was a sense of growing partnership and friendship and togetherness. And then COVID hit and we'd been isolated 
We've been put into silos. We haven't connected with one another. We haven't had the opportunity to do it. And we're in this position, not through any fault of our own, of being actually quite separated. And many of us, I mean, some of you might have thought to yourself, no, I don't feel very connected to the church right now. It's understandable that you don't feel very connected right now because we haven't been able to be together, to do the normal stuff that friends do together. And Philippians is going to be a partner for us and it's going to help us gather together, come together for purpose so that when we find ourselves on the other side of June, we're going to find ourselves on mission together, shoulder to shoulder, striving, Paul says, side by side for the faith of the gospel. Living with purpose is good. Amen. If you ever experienced like, I don't know what my life is about right now. That's not a, that's not a good place to be in. Living with purpose is good. And what Paul provides us with in this letter is purpose, meaning a reason to be. So I want to read just the first five verses. If you've got your Bible with you and um, then pray then we're going to get into it. Let me just remind you, this is a letter. Sorry to sound like really dumb, but it's actually just a letter written by a man to a group of people that he loves. So we want to read the Bible as it was written, not as like a, just an abstract religious text, but as a, a man who was overflowing with emotion and thoughts towards some people that he knew and he loved. And he says this, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and the deacons, grace to you. And peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Let me just pray briefly. Father, I thank you for this letter. This, this letter preserved for us some 2,000 years now. And I pray that as we enter and journey with Paul through this letter, that you would gather us together for the gospel, that we might find fresh purpose, fresh connection, fresh partnership together, that you would bless us. Lord, and I do pray, I think everyone in this room prays that June the 31st would be, 21st would be, would be a moment where all restrictions are lifted. Lord, would you... Would you lift the restrictions? Would you allow, uh, would you push back the effects of COVID, we ask, that we might gather together? I pray that we could on that first Sunday, post-restrictions, have lunch in this place together. Would that be possible, Lord Jesus, we ask? And use this time, we pray, for your glory's sake. And all God's people say, Amen. Amen. So I just want to notice Paul's emotions and how he feels here, and then ask the question, why? How does Paul feel about this church that was struggling? They've just maybe gone through their first bumpy patch as a church. How does he feel? And he says in verse three, he says this, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Paul's overriding emotion as he writes this letter and as he thinks of the church from a jail in Rome, his overriding emotion is thanksgiving. He thinks of the faces and the names and his friends, and he is full of thanks. 
And it's a particular type of thanks because you can be thankful in very different ways. You can be thankful for spinach while not actually really liking spinach. You know, you can say, I thank you, God, that this food is going to help me be healthy, even though I find the taste of it disgusting. You might say, thank you for this medicine, even though this doesn't taste good. Or I thank you for the gym, even though I hate it every time. I know it's doing me good. Paul doesn't say thank you like that. He says, my thanks is fueled by joy. This is not a difficult thing, a choice that I'm making. He says this at the end of verse four, because of your partnership in the, sorry, verse four, always in every prayer of mine for all of you making my prayer with joy. So what is the fuel of his thanksgiving? The fuel is, is joy. I am just happy when I think of you. When I'm down, I think of you because you give me joy and that leads me to thanksgiving. This wasn't Paul having his arm twisted on those Philippians. They're so annoying, but I'm an apostle, so I've got to write a thank you first. No, he's like, I just feel joyous when I think of you, and I'm thankful. And he really labours this point, because time and time again, four times in verse 3 and 4, he uses this word all or every. So you might think, I'm thankful for 92% of you, but the rest of you guys who are causing a problem, this doesn't apply to you. You sort yourself out, and then I might say thank you and thank God. No, he's saying, I thank God for every single one of you. Look who he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance, every time I think of you, always in every prayer, always, all again, in every prayer. So every time he's praying for them, and he's praying for unity, he's praying for blessing, he's praying for a drawing together. He's still doing it with thanksgiving. And he says this, um, in every prayer of mine, for you all, again, we're like, we get it, Paul, for all of you making my prayer with joy. He's saying, every single one of you, church, I give thanks for you. And it's just an interesting thing in verse 1, because he says here, to all the saints in Christ Jesus... And in every other letter, apart from one, when he writes to the Roman church, he just says to the saints or to the church. But it seems like he's really laboring the point that every single one of you, church, I give thanks for you. Whether you're struggling right now or you're not, my heart is giving thanks for, for you. And I want to suggest that this modeling of Paul, of thanksgiving, and verbally actually saying something or writing something or texting something to someone else is actually a really important part of us being a community together. That Paul actually says how he feels. And some of us, you know, as a white British person, you know, white British, we cannot be very good at actually saying, we can feel like gushing things towards someone and never actually say it because it just feels awkward. Other, other nationalities and other nations are actually quite good at this. But I would suggest we need to follow Paul and say, if we feel some thanksgiving for someone else, if they've helped us, if there's some joy, if there's some way in which we need to verbally let them know, because how encouraged would they be? Mandy is part of our church. You might be watching now, Mandy. Love you. Um, Mandy left me a voice note about two weeks ago. That lived with me for like a week. I was like, I was just buoyed by it. I was just like strengthened by the fact that Mandy had spoke some words of encouragement into my life. What if every time you gathered in a telos group or community group or on a Sunday or you were just doing life or texting one another, you left with some encouragement from that other person? How would you feel when you left? You, you would feel bigger, stronger, better able to deal with your week. If you know there are other people who have been, been encouraged by my presence. Amen. Wouldn't we want that? Like, I don't, I don't need to know where I stand with these people. Like, they're encouraged by me. 
So let me just encourage you. It might be awkward at first, but just like if someone said something to you that helped you, just let them know. Text them, call them, just tell them like this is awkward or a bit weird. But two weeks ago you said this thing. You might have you might have forgotten it, but actually it's meant a lot to me, and I've been so helped by it. What if there was a crisscrossing of those kind of verbal encouragements? And I just want to say, as a pastor here at Trinity Church London, I feel exactly like Paul. When I think of you guys, I am filled, honestly, with joy and thanksgiving. I don't want to freak you out. And you might be freaked out. I might want to walk out right now. But I have a big map on my study wall of London. And people who are part of the church, I have these little sticky notes. And I put your name on my map and your name is there and I look at your name and I think of your life and I pray for you regularly and every time I see your name the emotion that is drawn out of my heart is joy and thanksgiving I am grateful for you we may not talk for like a month at a time sometimes but you need to know that I am still actually thinking of you you are still a source of joy for my heart and I still pray for you I pray for God's blessing and his best over your life that's how I feel. Thanks. <laughs> I wasn't doing it for an applause, but I do appreciate the feedback and the verbal affirmation. I will take that away and ruminate on it. So thank you. Um, Paul feels joyous and he gives thanks for the church. The question is why? And we don't have to guess because he actually does just tell us, but... Why does he feel so thankful for this church? He has a reason. He says in verse 5, he says, Because, this is why I give thanks every time I remember you, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day, that's the first time we met, and he's got Lydia, that slave girl, the Roman centurion, his family, from the first day we met until now, from your gospel partnership with me. He's saying, I'm so grateful that you have been on mission, striving side by side with me for the faith of the gospel. Because he is saying that the church is not just a social club. This is not just a place where we have our preferences met and it's kind of people that we like to hang out with. Imagine that with a Philippian church. We're like, I'm not sure that really works right now. We gather together because we are here around the gospel. We don't gather for our own individual purposes we gather around one purpose that is God his presence and the good news that we have in Jesus Christ this community is not like the spiritual equivalent of a gym like if you go to the gym and they open tomorrow I booked my place in already it's been 12 months so it's about time it opens tomorrow (laughs) maybe that's why I'm thinking of gyms but we're not a spiritual gym. You know, people go to the gym for all sorts of different reasons. Some people want to lose weight. Some people want to look like Arnold Schwarzenegger. I said goodbye to that dream a long time ago. Some people just want to look good. Whatever it might be, some people want to get ready for like a triathlon or run a marathon or something. But everyone comes to the gym, they do their individual thing, and then they go home again. They just happen to be in the same building at a particular time. This is not that. We come together for one purpose, and the name is Jesus Christ and the gospel. We come as partners in this gospel. And this gospel, we have to articulate it. And I want to articulate it and just share as we close how we might gather around this gospel. The gospel actually has content. It's not whatever we make it out to be. It's not actually whatever the culture says is the best version of you in a year's time. 
The gospel has historical content about a man, Jesus Christ. The good news that we have, and that's all the gospel means, not a religious thing. It's just good news. The good news that we have, happy, joyous, life-giving good news that we have, is that there is a creator God who created the heavens and the earth, which means that we now have purpose and meaning in our life. It means that we can tell people your life matters. You are not just here by chance. You are not just molecules that will one day be dust again. Your life matters because you are formed by a creator God. We have good news that the the world and the universe is brimming with the delight and the love of God. The heavens declare the glory of God, we're told. We have good news to tell Londoners that God didn't stay far off, but he came close to us and he lived and he walked a life like ours. So he knows what it is to be lonely. He knows what it's like to feel disconnected. He knows what it's like to walk through darkness and depression and to face temptation. He knows what it's like to walk as a human so that he can empathize. That is good news. We are not trying to climb to God. He has come down to be with us. We have good news in that this Jesus Christ has died for our sins and our brokenness, that he has connected us back to God. He has made a way for us to know God again through his death and resurrection. And in his resurrection, we now have good news because he gives us eternal life. He met Paul, his eternal life. He met me 15 years ago, his eternal life. He met some of you, his eternal life. He is still meeting people alive and kicking, never to die again, offering eternal life to everyone who would receive him. And we have good news to offer in that this God is actually praying for us right now. This is good news, that he is praying with an never-ending energy, overflowing passion for your life, that you will make it to glory. You will not falter before you get there. You will make it to glory. And we have good news to tell people that God is going to judge the living and the dead. You might say, well, how, how the heck is that good news? He's going to judge everyone. It means there is going to be nothing unjust left. Once everything is said and done, that when God comes and he judges all the injustice, all the evil, all the wrongdoing, all the sin, it means that every single mouth will stand before God and no one will be able to say you weren't just, you weren't merciful, you weren't good in my life. Everyone will know that justice has been done. All the wrongs in your life that you still live with, all the loose ends that have not been righted in your life, all the wrongs that have happened against you, you will not carry those with you forever because God is is coming to judge the living and the dead and to make all wrong things right hallelujah and he makes a way for us to walk into eternal glory so that we don't need to live in hell but we need we can live in heaven because of jesus christ we have good news this is the content of the good news everything that god has done as soon as you start talking about things that christians should do or people should do we are not now talking of the gospel We're now talking about things that we do because of the gospel. That makes sense. Praying is not the gospel. Coming to church is not the gospel. These are things we do because of what God has done in the gospel. The gospel is what God has done. And then we respond by looking to him in faith. Amen. And what Paul talks about in this letter in Philippians is partnership around the content of this good news that we can offer out to people. 
It's partnership, he says. I thank God because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And in English, partnership can can sound a little bit like, you know, you could have a business partner or you could have a golfing partner if you're into that or a gym partner. This this word partner here is, is much deeper, richer, broader, higher than that. It's the Greek word koinonia. And there are lots of Greek words you don't need to know. Koinonia is a good one just to get to know. Koinonia speaks of not just like a business partnership, but this holistic, 3D, relational, God-saturated togetherness for purpose. And what I want to do is just walk through, as we close, six dimensions of this koinonia that we can, and I pray will, walk into as a church and what it looks like to be gathered around the good news of of Jesus Christ. There are lots of things, and these are just six dimensions from the church in Philippi that Paul writes about, and then we're going to close. So six things. The first thing is this. What does it mean to be in Koinonia as a church? The first thing is this, that we need to be an intergenerational church that we need to foster and grow intergenerational relationships. Mums with sons, dads with sons and daughters, grandparents with grandchildren, spiritually as a church. Because Paul models this. He says in the very first few words, he says, Paul and Timothy. And then he goes on to write the letter. And Timothy, in a sense, has nothing really to do with this. This is Paul himself writing. He's the apostle. Timothy is probably half of Paul's age right now. He's the apprentice. Paul is the mentor. And Paul, yet, is gathering up Timothy into this to encourage him and to bring him into this koinonia. Say, Timothy, you are part of this. It's not just me doing this. We need fathers and sons together on mission. And he writes in in chapter 2, verse 22, he writes later of Timothy, You know Timothy's proven worth, he says, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. So Paul, the older man, and Timothy, the young man, have the gospel in between them in common, and they are partners because of this. And I want to suggest that if we are going to live into the fullness of the koinonia of what Paul is talking about, we are going to grow as an intergenerational church. So you need to know that our goal is not to become increasingly young as a church and increasingly trendy. If you're a trendy person, be trendy. But if you're not trendy, there's no pressure here. Our goal is not to become young. And our goal also is not to become old. Our goal is to have mothers and fathers in the faith here who will be interested in those who are younger than them. Our goal is to have sons and daughters who will say, I need your parental spiritual care in my life. So if you're a youngster, our tendency, I just said our, hoping I'm part of that, I guess. Our tendency is to be like, I don't need the older generation. It's my turn now. I know what to do. That's just like from the age of like two, we're basically hardwired to say, I want to do it myself. And yet Koinonia, I think, would suggest, no, I need to invite wisdom, advice, counsel from older mums and dads around me in the church. And if you are older in the church, if you consider, actually, am I part of a church that's full of young people? We absolutely need you because we're not a business. We're not trying to reach one socio-demographic. We're actually a family. So we need mums and dads to walk towards those who are younger and just ask questions and be interested in young people's lives and how it's going and praying and encouraging because it means so much to us if I can be part of that crowd 
Amen. So we're going to be an intergenerational church. Secondly, we gather together with Koinonia because we all receive the same grace from the same God. So chapter one, verse seven, Paul says this. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers that is koinonia with me of grace he says that we're gathering together and I'm looking to God and asking for his grace and his strength to get through my weeks to to do another week at work to face my boss to whatever it might be I'm receiving grace and I look to my left and you're receiving grace from the same God And I look to my right and you're looking to the same God and receiving this same grace. We're all actually being helped by the same power, the same grace. And as we all look to the same God in Jesus Christ, we actually look around and find we've got friends on mission. Secondly, thirdly, we all enjoy the presence of the Holy Spirit in our life. He says this in chapter two, verse one. He says, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation or quinonia in the spirit. If you know that the Holy Spirit dwells in you, there is a quinonia that happens with God, the Father, Son and Holy Spirit and thereby with his church. That when we find ourselves bound up in God, we then look around us and actually find ourselves bound up with brothers and sisters. If we ever feel slightly disconnected, the first thing to do is to go to God in prayer and worship. And we find ourselves once again caught in this communion of Father, Son and Holy Spirit. As we do that, we find ourselves as we move closer to God, we find ourselves getting increasingly close to our brothers and sisters who are equally going after this God. Amen. My next point, I can't remember if I'm at three or four, is this. That we are going to, if we're going to walk in Koinonia, look after each other's interests, not ours first. He says this, off the back of that fellowship with the Holy Spirit, verse 4 of chapter 2. Let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So it goes back to this point. We're not here as a spiritual gym to do our own thing and go home. We're actually here to serve one another So when I don't feel like coming to church, it's not like, well, it's not my preference this Sunday. It's like, actually, my presence is an encouragement and serves other people. What might God do through me as I talk with someone else? What what deposit might I leave with another person that will change them for the next week? We just don't know and we'll miss out if we're not looking to each other's interests. And I mean, coming out of lockdown, we we are having to flex the whole time. And I'm so appreciative of how everyone has actually been super flexible with different times and things changing and kids being in beacons. Thank you for listening so well. If you are listening right now, um, hear my thanks. Um, But you sit really well. I mean, I just want to say thank you for sitting really well. Um, We're all in it together. We're all being flexible. And I just want to say thank you for looking to other people's interests as we try and navigate this disrupted time. And the last thing I want to say is this, that Koinonia looks like financial partnership in the mission. He says this in chapter four, verse 15. He says, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, that's when we first started. Remember, Lydia, those first early days, we didn't know what we were doing. When I first left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. 
Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once again. And not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit, those who gave. He says, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied. Having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So how do we join in koinonia around the gospel? We financially say, I am in. And you know you're in when you put your money where your mouth is and say, I'm not paying lip service to my koinonia. I'm actually going to financially participate in this mission because we're about the gospel. So over the next 10 weeks, we're going to be gathered together by Paul through the Holy Spirit. That's my prayer. He's going to pastor us. And we're going to point out what he says through this letter. And my prayer is that we find ourselves in June. We're going to find ourselves with brand new friends, potentially, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together, shall we?